Okay. Hi. Uh, so my name is Carrie Johnston, and I'm recording today from the traditional territory of Champion and Ajac First Nations in beautiful, mostly sunny Bakokata Haines Junction. And my guest today is Michael Pilo, and he is with us from Whitehorse on the traditional territory of Paankwetan Council and uh, Kwanlun Dun First Nation. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, so I'm a social innovation consultant, and most of my work is related to facilitation uh, processes, getting a bunch of people together, exploring really complex issues and trying to find the next wise course of action. I've been consulting now since uh, full-time, since 2006. Uh, I started uh, as a business and economic development consultant, so doing business plans, feasibility studies, business counseling. Uh, community economic development strategies and impact and benefit agreement negotiations. And has your work always been in the Yukon or have you done work outside? Uh, my work has always been uh, in the north, although I've worked for some national organizations as well. Um, I really got my start, uh, even though I started consulting when I lived in the Yukon, most of my clients were in the Northwest Territories where I had lived, uh, lived previously. Uh, and then just my client base here uh, grew. And so I've done work in Northern BC, Northwest Territories, and the Yukon, and for some national organizations. Mm -hmm. So you've done a lot of business consulting work. What advice would you give somebody who's thinking about their business in sort of this age of COVID and the pandemic? You know, there's a human instinct sometimes to sort of hang on or expect things will get back to normal. Uh, but really the best place that any of us can be in right now is, is sort of pay attention to the situation, accept it, and just be ready to adapt. Uh, the more adaptable you are, the better position you're going to be in to survive. How are you thinking about adapting your business? Because so much of my business involves uh, participatory processes where you get people into, uh, into a space together to explore things in a, in a deeper way. Uh, it's a bit tougher to do when you can't actually get people into the same physical space. Uh, so what I've been doing for the, uh, the past month or so is I've been kind of diving in deep on how to do good and effective facilitated processes using online tools. Uh, so Zoom being one, but there are, there are others as well and, and tools that can complement Zoom. And I'm now in a space where I'm ready to host some conversations that I, that I think are necessary to have in the territory. Yeah, so much of what the territory does requires sort of consultative process and, and bringing people together to do, to, to think and to do work. Um, we, we really do need those opportunities to create shared meaning. And the way that we did that before, you know, there were always ways to, to improve that. Uh, but I think now it's become more important than ever. Mm -hmm. Have you had any sort of aha moments while you're thinking? You've been, you know, grappling with this for a month now. So any aha moments that have kind of come to you? At first, you know, I was speaking earlier about adaptability. At first, I was really quite resistant to moving in this direction. I always wanted to take my facilitation work more land-based. I think you can have really, uh, really profound uh, conversations on the land when the land is included as part of the conversation. Um, however, I, I have had the opportunity to see people using online tools in very large scale facilitated processes. I'm talking, you know, two, 300 people, and I've seen how effective they can be. So even though I was initially 
resistant to that, I, I can see that there's opportunity there. And uh, right now it might be one of the best things we've got going for us. So it's, uh, instead of just saying, no, I don't want to do it, it, sometimes you just have to lean in a little bit and, and try things out and give it a chance. It's part of that experimentation process. Yeah. What, do you, what are some of the things that you do as sort of a human as for yourself to, to lean into resistance? What do, how do you grapple with that? Well, I've always enjoyed... In your own, the, sorry, your own personal resistance. <laughs> I've always enjoyed the, the process of, of discovery. And sometimes, I think I've recognized that sometimes when you're, you're meeting that resistance is actually right when you're on... The, when you're on that boundary of your comfort zone is sometimes where you get those breakthroughs, uh, where you're getting the most resistance. So instead of shying away from it or just shutting it down to, to actually be conscious of, of where you're feeling uncomfortable and questioning that and sort of pushing a little bit more and it, it's all, it often bears just wonderful fruit. So just worthwhile. Could you speak a little bit more about what social innovation is? Yeah, it's it's one of those terms that, uh, unfortunately, it's one of those terms that you can hear it and 100 people can have a different interpretation of what it means. Economic development is the same way. Uh, you know, economic development touches on so many things, but your perception of it is shaped by uh, your relationship to it. So probably the simplest way to explain social innovation is this idea that we we all exist within systems. Uh, we exist within political systems, economic systems, education systems, social systems, environmental systems, and all of those systems interact with each other and they all produce certain outcomes. Uh, sometimes those outcomes are desirable and sometimes they're really not. Uh, oftentimes those systems are not even all that deliberate. They've just kind of formed and because they work for most people, we, we just accept them as they are, uh, but they don't always work for everybody. So social innovation is really about not just looking at the outcomes, but questioning how can we look at these systems and how can we adapt these systems or even completely overhaul these systems to produce better outcomes. And sometimes that means incremental change and sometimes it means absolute disruption. So a social innovation process uh, takes you through that questioning, coming into a deeper understanding of those systems and the outcomes that they're producing, and trying to find other ways to intervene in or reinvent that system where it will start producing uh, better outcomes. Can you give any examples of sort of where we've seen social innovation here in Canada or Yukon Territory? Yeah, there's all kinds of uh, examples. Sometimes social innovation is happening and people don't Aren't, aren't even calling it social innovation, um, but it, it happens quite frequently. So in the territory, um, one example, a couple of years ago, uh, they were looking to develop a strategy for Yukon's uh, eight indigenous languages, a revitalization strategy. And had that process gone with kind of a conventional strategic planning uh, process, it might not have gone necessarily deep enough and might have all been contained within a document then that certain individuals would be responsible for implementing. Uh, but what we did instead, I was working with uh, Sean Smith uh, on this. Uh, we worked with the client and we managed to open it up. So we ended up having 
think it was between 60 and 90 people, depending on where we were over the course of two days, where we started exploring the factors that were contributing to Indigenous language loss. And there are multiple factors contributing to Indigenous language loss. But by coming to understand those systems in a deeper way, uh, then the people who were participating in the conference were in, then in a better position to intervene in those systems. So as an example, uh, there are economic reasons why people are not learning Indigenous languages. And recognizing that uh, Champagne and Asiac First Nation, for example, said, well, if these languages are actually really valuable. There are economic reasons to have our languages grow and flourish. And if people aren't learning the language because they can't afford to, then we need to start making those investments in people so that they can learn language. And so they started their the language immersion program where they have a number of participants whose job it is now to learn those languages. And as a result of that shift, uh, because they've understood those systems in a, in a deeper way or in a different way, we are now seeing a, a growing number of language speakers for the first time in ages uh, in Champagne and Asiac First Nation. Yeah, that is a bit of a shift in sort of thinking from what we consider some of our more traditional economic measurements to consider sort of um, integration of language as, as, a pre, or, or as a foundation for economic development. It's, uh, I, I got to learn a lot working on that project and our languages are shaped by our worldviews. Our languages are fundamentally shaped by how we think. And English is a very, the language of English, everything is isolated, everything is separated. We have all these nouns for things. Uh, so everything is removed from each other. And it's very indicative of a worldview where we want to command and control the things that are around us. Whereas uh, the Nadeni languages, Dakwanjay uh, or Sevantishoni being one of them, uh, is very heavily verb-based, where everything is in motion and relationship and transition and process. And that interconnectedness between all things is captured within that language. It, it shapes that worldview. And I really do think that we're at a time uh, where different ways of thinking are hugely valuable. We need those different ways of thinking to figure out the problems that we're experiencing. And so I do think that Indigenous languages are tremendously valuable and mm. definitely worth investing in. We've, that's come up a couple of times in this sort of interview series is this concept or this idea that we need to sort of shift our worldview in order to respond to the pandemic and respond to sort of some of the economic forces that are present now and might be present sort of as we, we walk through this pandemic. What sort of, how, how could any one of us as individuals sort of walk into that space of thinking about different worldview? What are some tools or ways that we can start thinking differently? That's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's, there's researching other cultures, there's researching other worldviews and the way that people see things. But I think that we have a, a really great opportunity right now just to question everything. And why is such a powerful question. You know, we 
so coming from an economic development background, um, a lot of economic developers seldom question why do we want economic growth? What do we want out of it? And it's just sort of assumed that growth is good, but to what end? And so that question of why do we want economic development? What do we hope to achieve from it? Is a question that we should be asking right now uh, because our economic systems are hugely disrupted right now. So what do we want out of our economic systems? That, that answer is going to vary depending on who you are and where you live and, and what matters to you. Um, but just, it's a simple question. Why? And I think we need to ask it more. Now let's flip this back sort of to a business environment. You know, we're asking businesses to be adaptable, to sort of think differently. Um, you know, we've got a lot of businesses that have traditionally operated in sort of a storefront format and we're asking to sort of move into different spaces. What are some of the tools or, or how might business owners start to sort of move themselves into that space? It's really going to depend on each business and why they're doing their business and what they hope to get out of their business, um, who their customers are. It's, it's, you know, there isn't a one size fits all approach. There really isn't. Uh, every business exists within an ecosystem and every business fills certain niches. And sometimes it requires a bit of experimentation to understand that niche and not every business is going to survive. Uh, but the ones who are the most adaptable and who know why they want to be there uh, will probably do the best. That focus on why. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are some of the wellness practices that you're using to kind of get you through this period? Um, so I love being with my fiance and having conversations, being with her is awesome. Uh, it's very comforting. Uh, but also I like getting out on the land. I like going for walks and just being in the trees and being, being outside, uh, that I find, uh, grounding, um, it, it, it creates that space for reflection, uh, which I think is important. It's so easy. So many of us have been in a go, go, go mode uh, for such a long time that going into a space of, of uh, quiet and a space of reflection feels super uncomfortable. Uh, but I think that's really important. It's, uh, if you think of it like a merry-go-round, you know those merry-go-rounds in playgrounds that you pretty much can't find in playgrounds anymore? Yeah. I, th I think there's one at Kukutsun, but that might be like the only one left in the world. Um, what's it like when you're on that, on that merry-go-round and it's spinning? Like, describe it for me. I guess it's dizzying. Um, but uh, I don't know, I guess like it, sometimes it's a feeling like there's sort of like a lightness that sort of happens here as everything's sort of like moving around. And is everything kind of blurry as you're flying along? I guess, I guess so. But I, in my mind, my eyes are closed. Like it's a, it's a more of a sensation than it is a, a visual, but sure. Yeah. And when you're on that and it's spinning around, are you just like holding on for dear life? Oh, probably. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a crazy thing that happened, and that's how, like, 
most people spend their lives, right? Is just hanging on as the world spins and you're doing the best you can and it takes a lot of effort. And, but there's a crazy thing that happens when you can find the still point. When you get to the center of that merry-go-round, you can just sit on it. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, everything becomes clearer. You can take your time and pay attention to things. And you can see the people hanging on for dear life. But when you find that still point, everything becomes easier to understand. Mm -hmm. And when you're running a business, often it's go, 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 go. But it's not always all that productive. And if you can learn how to get into that still point, if you can learn how to get into that place of calm, where all those churning thoughts can settle down a little bit, you can start to see what's actually important. You can start to see where the smart places to intervene are, where you can do almost minimal effort for maximum effect. But it requires learning how to just go into that space. So it's a difficult skill, but it is one that can be learned. Any aha moments for you over the past couple of weeks? Yeah. Um, I was out of the country and came back and went into 14 days of quarantine. And a local politician, Kate White, did a telephone town hall. And because I'm curious about how do we do community engagement now, I, I listened in on this telephone town hall. And there were opportunities for the the listeners to ask questions and there was a listener who uh who was talking about how she was lonely and didn't have anybody to talk to and how that was scary and i was quite happily in quarantine uh, i worked out of my house anyways not that much has really changed and i realized that there are probably a lot of people that i'm completely not aware of who are in similar situations and it just so happened that I was developing a 1-800 line for a community engagement process for people who don't have internet. Um, and I, well, it's pretty easy and inexpensive to set up a 1-800 line. So I reached out to, to Kate White and offered, I could set up a 1-800 line if, if we can find someone to help manage it. And she found a dispatcher and we set up the line and volunteers started coming out of the woodwork, but hardly anybody phoned the line. And, and it was shared. People were like, oh, this is great, but hardly anybody phoned the line. And I, you know, looking at the number of people who've come out of the woodwork to volunteer and how many people have actually phoned the line, I think I'm learning something or realizing something about human pride. About how, you know, perhaps we all crave that connection, but there's a real difference in admitting vulnerability and, you know what, I just need to talk to somebody, I'm going to phone this line versus... I'll talk to somebody, but I'll do it as a volunteer. I want to be helpful. I want to have purpose. And that sense of purpose is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there are a lot of people out there whose purpose has been just yanked out uh, from under them. And so that I think is another wellness practice perhaps is, is uh, questioning purpose and okay, so your sense of purpose, whether that was your job or your business or whatever it happens to be is gone now. What do you want your new sense of purpose to be? And then taking this time, taking this opportunity to explore that. Because as tough as this time is and can be, it also contains within it tremendous possibility. 
Yeah, it's funny. I, uh, I reached out to volunteer for that line. And, and I didn't call the line, though, to volunteer. I called the line because I needed a human connection. And when it came to like choosing the number, like which one was I going to press? Like, do I need to talk to somebody or do I need to volunteer? I hit volunteer. Cause I think there was like a little bit of pride. There was something in there in me that was like, well, that's, you know, that's me. But what I was looking for was human connection too. And probably a lot of those volunteers were as well. Yeah. So now we're questioning and questioning how we're going to adapt. And uh, if you like, I would be very happy to talk to our dispatcher and have a volunteer call you <laughs> or have you call a volunteer, whichever way, either way, either way. I think that's just it. We're also, you know, longing for some of those like human, those random connections that we have when we run into somebody at the grocery store or at the park or wherever it is. And, you know, we just don't have as many of those connections right now. And that's, you know, we, we yearn for them. Yeah. Any songs, music, podcasts, books, something that you'd recommend what's kind of keeping you going? Um, hmm. I have been doing a fair bit of reading lately. Um, I read a book a little while ago that I often come back to. I've read some really good books lately, but one that I've been coming back to lately is a book by Dmitry Orlov. And, uh, Dmitry lived in Russia or had just moved out of Russia when Russia collapsed. And his book is called The Five Stages of Collapse. Mm -hmm. And what he does is he goes through these often very predictable uh, patterns of collapse through time. Uh, so the Roman Empire, um, other countries, etc. And the book is not so much about uh, telling people what to do, but to lay out, well, here's some options for when these things happen. It doesn't, he doesn't uh, say that, oh, you can predict when it's going to happen, just that it will. It's going to happen. And when it does, here are some of the things that happen in those stages and how you can prepare yourself for them. And I'm, I'm really curious. I'm really wondering, um, what things are going to look like on the other side of this, uh, what things are going to look like economically, what things are going to look like for governments. If governments around the world are sustaining populations uh, without any income necessarily from tax revenues and whatnot, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? And what are the consequences of that as we come out of it? Because they could be huge depending on how we manage it. Uh, and so just thinking about that in the context of this book uh, has, has been something that's on my mind a little bit. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much to, to think about there. We're using and leveraging totally different economic tools than we've used in the past. And so mm -hmm. the, um, the decisions that we make today will, will start to, you know, we, we choose our future too. And so we can, you know, as we start to think about those systems that we're all part of and, and think about um, the, the decisions that we make today and, and what that means for our tomorrow. Yeah. When we started on this, when things started being locked down, I was questioning, are we really dealing with system interruption 
or are we dealing with system disruption? The difference being with system interruption, there's a, there's a resilience built in. Uh, it's halted for now, but it's going to go back to the way things were. But now I think we're at a point where it's just, we need to get used to things being really different. And now is the time to start envisioning what do we want the future to look like so we can lay those seeds for when that, for when that comes. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Michael. Thank you.